0: Hey, this is the last Coffee House Today. We are talking about a non-fiction work called World Order by Henry Kissinger. That is that Henry Kissinger. So, background author is Henry Kissinger. He was a former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor under Nixon and Ford. He was notoriously hated by Christopher Hitchens... <laughs> one of my longtime faves Uh, he published this book in 2014 and this is more it's kind of history it's got some politics but it's mostly history and trying to decode uh, what's been going on with the whole world order for the past few hundred years (laughs) so good luck distilling that into a book especially when there are people involved who was it that said something about if you think quantum physics is hard try studying quantum physics when every particle can think it's a tough thing and it's really complicated And I know Google just had some kind of breakthrough when it comes to quantum computing or something like that. The most powerful computer ever. So maybe we're not that far off from the big robot takeover and then we won't have to worry about this stuff. But until then, we might as well just keep on learning. You know, have something to talk about with parties. So content of this book, the macro frame of it is that there are different systems of world order that have prevailed over the course of the last 400 years or so. So he kind of breaks it up into four. There's the Westphalian system sovereignty system there's kind of the imperial china way of doing things There's a religious authoritarianism of many islamic countries and of course we're just talking about the recent 400 years so religious authoritarianism can be (laughs) drawn all the way back if we wanted to go back that far but it's more modern history so and there's the democratic idealism of the united states and presumably other western countries okay so westphalia uh, the treaties of westphalia is really the peace of westphalia which was a collection of treaties that were signed around 1648, extremely important historical moment because it established the idea of equal sovereign states who were just doing internally. They had their sovereignty, they had their border integrity, and they could just do whatever they wanted to do within those borders. Because prior to this, it was just incessantly warring factions who had the idea that everything around them was was supposed to be theirs. So it's a big deal. The author goes into oh he says how Western Europe, Russia, China, and the Ottoman Empire were different at this time but western nations who all were parties to the series of treaties related to westphalia they had this idea of sovereign states uh, around 1648 so he goes into the holy roman empire and charlemagne charles v uh, the recognition of protestantism and i think it was, it was charles v retired as a holy roman emperor and of course what's i forget who says the line but the holy roman empire was neither holy nor roman nor an empire <laughs> so quality quip quality nailed him he died charles v i believe died in 1558 i just i don't know enough about the holy roman empire i really don't it was left to philip we've got the 95 theses everybody knows that that's like the first thing you learn in elementary school or something it's like addition and luther nailed the 95 theses to the door i think that's how it goes and you've got the protestant reformation big deal destroyed the two poles of papacy and empire so those two things that had governed the way the world worked for so long Now didn't have that pull anymore. I said pull and pull. I mean, they just weren't important now. We had the Thirty Years' War. Uh, he goes into France and talks about Louis XIV, which was a major figure to me in my early education, the Sun King and the origin of Louisiana. <laughs> and I think this is about Louis the Fourteenth. initially went to war and won every battle. Then we get into some Prussia talk, and Prussia was really kind of looking for its role on the world stage. Then we get Frederick the Great. He spoke and wrote French. He wrote French poetry. And he had kind of the idea that if you have the power then that's the justification for wielding it he sees silesia he had a war with russia until Catherine the great died and then the successor of Catherine the great i think admired frederick so that ended but frederick the great big deal for purposes of prussia then we've got the age of enlightenment you know obviously a lot of these times when we have these books that are kind of surveys of history western history or world history or whatever it seems like they tend to go afield you know they just mention all all the big tent poles instead of necessarily, I don't know, sticking to the topic. It feels like, oh, we need to mention the Enlightenment and the Encyclopedia and D'Alembert and Diderot and Kant. It's like is this really that necessary? But I guess he says Kant said something about states needing to restrain their passions I guess. Fine. So you'd plug that on in there. Gets into the French Revolution, Napoleonic, Napoleon and the Napoleonic Code, one of the most important developments in history. seeding the meritocracy way back there in the 19th century, early 19th century, late 18th century. Much appreciated. Thank you, Napoleon. Russia, Russia had a czar, there's Peter the Great, who adopted western manners and hairstyles. It's too bad he couldn't take it a little further than that, because maybe we could have avoided the whole Cold War issue, but he started modernizing the military, he added a conscripted labor force and built St. Petersburg, he killed his rivals, he was the absolute ruler as the czar, and felt that authoritarianism was a necessity, and this is so interesting to think about, how the memes kind of perpetrated themselves on later generations, and how much effect that had on, like, the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union and Stalin and all those people that came thereafter, the vanguard party of the revolution, you wonder how much that was seeded just throughout, you know, because you can't really, it's a whole butterfly-flapping tornado thing, you know, you wonder how much those actually affected each other down the centuries, but anyway, disdain of the West would eventually turn to admiration in Russia, and I think, oh, I think there's some talk, he talked about how Napoleon was impressed with the fact that the Russians were willing to burn down Moscow just so Napoleon couldn't have it. Uh, then we get into, and I'm sorry, I, obviously I'm racing through this stuff, uh, but I'm just trying to give you an idea what the book's about and some of the the big things that it has to say so that you can decide whether you want to read it or not or just take kind of the, the pearls from it and move on or then have to go diving yourself. So we've got the World War One alliances. Everybody knows about those, obviously. Overly complicated, led to a bunch of dominoes that ended up causing the most destructive war in history until the next one. But this was where obviously World War One is fascinating because it was kind of the necessitated a rapid adva- advancement where the beginning of the war looked very different from the end of the war. And then you've got Otto von Bismarck in Prussia who's one of the biggest deals historically and one of the pre- again you wonder what's the butterfly effect with Otto von Bismarck because he was instrumental in unifying German states and German identity. He was in Prussia uh, Metternich preceded him but I think Metternich was forced to resign during the 1848 revolutions, but Metternich and Bismarck have very different approaches. Metternich valued the truth over everything, and Bismarck believed nationalism was important, and like I said, he was a major step in the unification of Germany. Now, in my idealism, I would love to believe that, you know, just valuing truth, period, is the most important thing, and it's the thing that'll get you, it'll set you free, (laughs) but that does not seem to work always, (laughs) necessarily, so a lot of times you have to play the game by its rules instead of trying to play your own game just because it's the noble way to go. So, but Bismarck, big deal, important person in history. So World War One and Versailles. And one of the things, okay, so I wasn't gonna talk about this, but it's like, like just then when I said important person in history, I deliberately changed my language because I was not say important man, but then I was like, oh, I don't want to perpetuate the patriarchy. So it's like, I had to edit myself out of fear of not being PC enough or something like that, just because he had, happens to be a guy who did a whole bunch of important things in history and i'm worried about the feelings of people who might be listening to say that oh well you didn't talk enough about women doing important things in history it's just oh what a ridiculous place to be i mean obviously it could be there's some aspect of scaffolding to get people to stop stereotyping so much even even if the stereotyping stereotypes could have kernels of truth all throughout it's still it's really important to treat people as individuals so you're not doing that even though those heuristics are something that we use in every other aspect of life it just can be very destructive when it comes to stereotyping based on certain factors like i said even if they led you to accurate assessments in particular cases it's still better to treat people as individuals so in this it's just it was so weird that i did that self edit just in my brain instantly and i was just like oh no you have to say person obviously he he was a classical (laughs) male by the classical definition so whatever Anyway, moving on from that, it's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just so weird. So you had World War One and Versailles. V- Versailles, obviously the Treaty of Versailles, which you likely learned in high school, was extremely hostile to the Germans. They weren't even invited to negotiate it. And he has a note to the author uh, about there was a switch from power to legitimacy. So there's this idea of legitimacy of states on the world stage. And of course, all, the treatment of Germany had a, a big impact in what led to the horrible conditions there that led to the rise of that party and all the things thereafter. So, Cold War after that and then it was the idea of America as managing director instead of just a bunch of equal states all over the place. Europe was still based on kind of uh, the Westphalian idea of a bunch of equal sovereign states that are interacting, but it was more the idea of America as a managing director and it was unilateral that America's saying that, okay, well, I'm this and you're gonna have to fall to some extent in line so that we can ensure that, you know, the world doesn't end up in a ball of fire. So then he talks about Islam and how that's kind of a different... Everybody's heard of Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations talk and the Orientalism, which is, I think, panned nowadays as discriminatory or reductive or something like that. Obviously, in our country, we do need to treat anybody who happens to be of whatever religion as an individual. They do what they do. They believe what they believe. That's it. Done. (laughs) But there are fundamental differences between the way that Islamic countries in general... uh, uh, just making you know broad averages here treat the idea of governance versus Western countries treating the idea of governance so under Islam is primarily you either converted you were tolerated as a subjected religious community or you were conquered and that was that was the idea you know when Islam was at its its prime position to make the terms of how people are going to interact so that's that's how they'd act uh, he talks about the idea of jihad obviously there's kind of the distinction between and I just hate it because there's so much just mixed in with the whole pc reactionary nonsense about how no everything in islam is perfect and and wonderful and but christianity is evil and terrible you could have the same idea in the islamic texts that you have in christian or jewish texts and they would interpret them or treat them completely differently you know whether they're going to criticize them or not just because they see islam as this weak minority and islamophobia as some kind of a thing so it's so odd but there's a difference you know people could say the spiritual struggle of jihad versus the actual struggle (laughs) and this is the distinction between like islamists and jihadists and just your average nominal muslim who doesn't really believe in eternal struggle apart from just like a struggling to be great or be one with God or whatever else. So lots of stuff going on. Uh, there's this quote, I don't remember this is from, but heart, tongue, hand, sword related to Islam. I don't remember what it's from, but. So the Ottoman Empire gradually became sclerotic. That's like rigid. And then you had the emergence of Islamic secular states like Turkey and what, like Bangladesh. They're secular states, but they're primarily Islamic. So they still have certain aspects, we'll say, that reflect their Islamic culture that still insinuate themselves onto the secular state, but uh, they're mostly, they still try to do it in a secular way where they have votes and all that sort of thing. So, you had the Arab Spring, remember that, in Egypt? Where you've got, you ended up with a small group who accepted Israel, larger group who wants to destroy Israel, and different ideas about how to do Do that. Some of them wanted to overcome Israel in stages, as opposed to just, like, attacking them. And there are aspects of the education that call israel evil so indoctrinating the children to think this from from the get-go and he's going like he does a survey and the way he structures it is that he'll like go through the history and then have a prescription for this particular region (laughs) and what they they ought to do what they need to do in working with the modern world world order but anyway so saudi arabia he talks about the hajj which is the travel to mecca that every muslim is supposed to do at some point it's a obligatory at least once in their life, uh, and how Saudi Arabia is now has a controlled pace of modernization rather than just racing for it. So I think they just recently said that women could drive, so that was a step, you know, in that direction. And you wonder, because obviously they're sitting on all that oil money, the royal Saudi family, and you wonder if they actually care or believe all of the more retrograde ideas when it comes to Islam and, and the things they should or should not be doing or allow people to do. You wonder if they're kind of more, uh, they're probably all Western-educated and more interested in just maintaining a clear pace so they don't have to deal with scary uprisings that could overthrow the whole thing, rather than, you know, like really instituting retrograde ideas, but who knows? I mean, Saudi Arabia's a weird, weird situation. It's out for a ride and wham, a blowout. No use, Sam. Pumping isn't going to help your situation. Here's Sam's and everybody's answered to freedom from flats and extra protection against blowouts. Famous general puncture sealing safety tubes that seal holes automatically like this.